you don't trust the New York Times to tell you? I, I, I don't even follow New York Times. I'm somewhere between, but not because I like them, but because they are most practical for quick news uh, just to get what is going on. And here we are more used to CNN and Guardian in Europe. But I'm right. saying absolutely not. They are, they are, uh, they are the best. But is there my point value is, to a, an organization that is gathering news and then telling you each day, this is important. We have, we, we, we have the brightest people in our newsroom and we no, believe. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not aware of it. I, you don't, I don't think that there's any value to like a BB? Probably, no, 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 probably it is. I'm not saying there is not, you know. I'm just saying that I am not aware. If you have a suggestion that there is a, 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 a domain or whatever website where you click that and you learn all that is really important, I would like to, to know it. No. The comment section on Pornhub for me always gets me through the... the Pornhub, like, but how can you skip the other part of... Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, he only goes there to read this? the comments. Ah, now you are a dirty old man. <laughs> if they, no, what I mean is that if they catch you looking at naked women or whatever is there, you say, hey, I'm really just for the news there. They have the best comment section. <laughs> the comment when section, I was you young, can't beat it. I must say, many people, but sincerely, they were not lying, were telling me that in Playboy 30 years ago and more, they had quite good long interviews and so on. You know, yes. it, it wasn't yes. all bullshit. There's, a, there's, a, there's an interview with, with Thomas Pynchon from, from like a Playboy from the early 70s yeah. that I read yeah. for the articles. Uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. No, the review yeah. section in Hustler was magnificent. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Thank you okay. so much. Thank I'm you so start. much. And I, really appropriate, uh, I really enjoyed it. And Keep in touch. Even with you, Russell, my, and Ben, my two greatest enemies, we still keep in touch. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, my name is Ben Burgess. I am joined, as always, uh, Kelly is off tonight, but I'm joined, as always, uh, by our graphic designer, J. Andrew World, and our producer, Kale. Wait, where's Kale? Did something happen to Kale? Oh, oh, Jake Gaffin, that's right, that's right. So, uh, Kale uh, will be back many times as a guest, uh, but the uh, regular producer is now uh, Jake Gaffin. Uh, and in the post game for patrons, you can hear all about his, his origin story. Uh, but say hi to, say, you know, what, say hi to everybody, hey, Jake. Hey, yeah, I just found out that I'm going to be uh, doing my origin story. So, uh, I'm, you know, I'm excited for that. I'm going to have to figure out what to say. Thanks for having me on. Excited for my first episode. So the voice you heard in the cold open was, of course, the world's second most famous Slovenian, Slavoj Žižek, maybe third, now there's Luka. Um, but uh, declaring me to uh, be his uh, bitter enemy, uh, but uh, despite our newfound status as Bitter Enemies, Slavoj is going to be back on this show in November, a little preview of coming attractions there. Uh, tonight, though, we've got somebody who isn't from Slovenia at all, uh, not from any part of Slovenia, David Griscom. Uh, and 
more on that and what we're going to be exploring with uh, with David in a few minutes. Uh, meanwhile, though, there are a couple things that Merrick quit mentions. The first is that I'm going to be teaching another online course at Michael Albert School for Social and Cultural Change. This one is called Analytic Marxism and the Materialist Theory of History. Uh, we're going to be reading um, G.A. Cohen's great book, Karl Marx's Theory of History and Defense, which is a very clearly written and very rigorous book, but, you know, it's also like pretty densely packed. And if you've ever wanted to read it or you started to, and you know, and, and you want to pick back up, I think this is a good chance to read it in the best circumstances in the class. We're going to go through it together. Everybody can help each other out. So that's going to be in October and November, but enrollment is open now. Uh, head over to sscc.teachable.com if you want to sign up for the class, which again is going to be in October and November, but you can sign up right now. Again, that is sscc.teachable.com. Uh, uh, so the other thing that I wanted to mention uh, is that I'm going to be in New York this weekend. I would have uh, organized some big public thing like a, you know, maybe even a GTA live show. Uh, but things are still a little ambiguous with the Delta variants and whatnot as far as people going to events. Uh, so uh, that's going to have to wait. Uh, meanwhile, though, uh, while I am in town, a group called the Gotham Atheists asked if I'd be the guest at their monthly meetup. Uh, a little odd, I know, uh, that it's that and not uh, some more, you know, directly uh, political thing. Uh, but, I, you know, it does make some sense. I did a debate with Douglas Wilson a while back about whether atheism is immoral, so maybe it's not quite as random as it might seem. Uh, Jake, do we have the uh, clip from that debate? All right. Thank you, James. Uh, thank you, Pastor Douglas, for, uh, for doing this. Uh, before I start with the main line of argument, I want to clear up one possible source of confusion. I'm an atheist, obviously, and I'm here to defend the moral honor of atheism. But what I'm not is an anti-theist. I'm not here to besmirch the moral honor of theism. In fact, even though I'm an atheist and more than enough of a philosophy nerd to thoroughly enjoy arguing about topics like theism versus atheism, uh, in the past, I've largely avoided this topic in public debates like this for the simple reason that I spend most of my time arguing about politics, and I don't want to give anyone who knows me from those contexts the impression that there's an anti-theistic component to what I advocate politically. There isn't. While I'm an atheist, and I clearly don't think that my being an atheist puts me at any sort of disadvantage in talking about morality, which is what we'll be discussing tonight, I deeply admire the Christian left, figures like Tony Benn or Cornell West or just to pick a third progressive Christian at random, my wife, Jennifer Burgess. Uh, so that's not the point, right? I think that like people like Robert E. Lee, who fought for what I regard as the most evil cause in human history was a Christian, but so was John Brown. So uh, there you go. Uh, so this is, um, yeah, I should clarify, I'm not gonna be giving a speech or anything. It's just a social event. People should certainly feel free to come hang out even if they aren't uh, that hot and bothered one way or the other by the whole atheism and religion subject. Uh, it's outdoors, so it's something that a lot more people are comfortable doing, even you know, while Delta is going on, dinner or drinks in the park kind of thing. So it's at the corner of Broadway and 23rd on Friday the 17th at uh, 8, uh, 8 p.m. Uh, so uh, if anyone you know, watching or listening wants to come by and, you know, and chat a bit, hang out, uh, Always uh, more than happy to do that. Uh, final thing I wanted to mention before we get into the meat of this opening segment is that I have two articles out in Jacobin since the last episode. 
One of them is a review of the HBO Obama documentary, which is, uh, good Lord, five hours of the most vapid kind of lip shit imaginable. Uh, but uh, I watched it so you don't have to. That's called uh, HBO's new Obama documentary, is A Political Propaganda, which is probably a lot nicer than I would have said if I picked the title. Uh, the other one has to do with the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. Uh, earlier today, I was watching Friend of the Show. I know when I say that, I'm usually being shitty, like, you know, Friend of the Show, Ben Shapiro. Uh, but in this case, I actually need it. She's been a repeated guest and we like her. Uh, I was watching Crystal Ball on Breaking Points, and she said something uh, not just about Afghanistan, but about the whole, you know, larger history of, uh, you know, the war on terror as it's, as it's played out in the last two decades that I thought was extraordinarily uh, well put. Uh, do we have that clip? It is such a crime that has been committed to this country, what has been done to these people, the surveillance that was justified, the breach of civil liberties that will never be ruled back that was justified by all of this, the complete destabilization of an entire region, the fact that we made ourselves so much less safe. We helped to generate new terrorist groups. We made the Taliban more powerful than they've ever been before. ISIS. That's the real legacy. And every year when 9-11 rolls around, I think to myself, if we had done nothing in response, we would have been infinitely better off. And the world would have been wow. infinitely better off than the actions that George W. Bush caused us to take. Yeah. There you go. Uh, I thought that was extraordinarily well said. And of course, the 20 years of bloodshed in Afghanistan is one of the worst aspects of what Crystal was talking about there. Just two decades of nonstop brutality and human misery with the end result of replacing the Taliban with a more powerful version of the Taliban. Uh, I may be an atheist, but Jesus Christ, thank God that's over. Uh, so um, naturally, lots of Mainstream media pundits don't see it that way because, you know, um, hellscape, et cetera. Uh, so, for example, we have the uh, Eli Lake tweet. So, yeah, it's the one only Eli Lake says uh, he's making fun of people who called Afghanistan a forever war. He says, end the forever war in Okinawa, Germany, and South Korea. Come home, America. I know we've got another tweet from, from one of these ghouls, uh, you know, saying, uh, you know, basically the same thing. Here we go. Uh, Patrick Ruffini, uh, he says, the United States must immediately withdraw from all these countries because if we leave any troops, it's a forever war. And then he's got this little chart that shows uh, distribution of American troops around the world. The largest part is in Japan and it's Germany after that. And South Korea is a distant, you know, third place. Uh, and basically, I mean, uh, two points about all this in the article. Um, so the first is, no, for God's sake, it is not exactly the same thing. Um, you know, it would be exactly the, uh, the, the same thing if, you know, the U.S. troop presence in Germany was to prop up you know, Angela Merkel's regime as it fought for its life against an insurgency that already controlled like most of Bavaria and parts of Saxony. Uh, that is not the situation. So no, uh, 
you know, it's, it is in fact much worse uh, to keep troops in Afghanistan in an active war zone, propping up a government that would last two seconds uh, without us than it would be to keep troops in these other places. But also, too, unironically, yeah, Eli, that should happen. Uh, the, we, we should, in fact, not have forever bases in all of these places. It is absurd and obscene that uh, the United States maintains you know, this permanent imperial military presence and, you know, hundreds of bases, you know, spread out across the entire planet, you know, like there's no, you know, major region that doesn't have something. And there's absolutely no reason we should have this. Uh, it does not, in fact, make the world safer. It makes the world less safe because it's a belligerent posture. Uh, it's uh, it's something that makes it easier for the United States to start wars elsewhere. Like, you know, Germany, for example, is opposed to uh, the war in Iraq diplomatically, but U.S. bases in Germany sure played a big role uh, as a stop-off point for planes, you know, going over with weapons to Iraq and coming back with wounded soldiers to be treated there. Uh, it's a huge money drain, you know, of, of cash that we could spend on domestic uh, social programs. Lots of people in Okinawa, for example, have lots of reasons to resent uh, U.S. presence there. I'm not saying everything could be folded up like overnight. I think like in Korea, it should be tied to a diplomatic process to end the sort of remnants of the Korean War. But for God's sake, if you don't have as part of your political program that we should not permanently be maintaining all of this uh, political uh, presence, then yeah, I think you're not serious about the United States no longer being an empire. So uh, any thoughts about this, guys? I mean, I, I just have to say, like, um, you know, part of my origin story, since, uh, uh, you know, to get Jake ready for his later, um, you know, uh, my, my uh, grandfather actually served in uh, World War II, Korea and Vietnam. Um, he, he was a cook during Vietnam uh, and was on Okinawa uh, for at least eight years. Uh, that's where my father kind of grew up there. So so um, and then after my father got out of the military, he uh, built Hellfire missiles. Um <laughs> So anyways, uh, long story short there, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a continual thing. And to, to still hear, like, you know, um, uh, we're, we're in wars of, of, like, my grandfather who passed away years ago, and, uh, you know, still, still you know, actively there um, years and years after, uh, you know, that, that war was finished. Um, and and we're, still, uh, we're still using Hellfire missiles, uh, stuff that my father was working on 40 years ago. Um, that that kind of tells you uh, a lot about uh, uh, about about the, the you know just not just the endless war but the you know uh, capitalism really doesn't create innovation. Yeah, Jake. Um, all I would add. Well, my father's a lawyer in New Jersey, so it's not a um, you know we can go more in the backstory later. I'm not as relevant, <laughs> but um, it definitely is. It, it, it's always funny when these uh, conservative rules kind of accidentally make the the opposite point that they think they're making and it seems to happen with more frequency than it should right like almost like they're openly mocking us i can't tell yeah <laughs> oh so i guess if you had your way we would just not have this network of hundreds of military bases around the world and we would spend money on butter instead of guns i mean i, I, I guess god i mean it sounds pretty good to me <laughs> yeah, don't threaten me with a good time. Um, all right. Well, um, I, I apologize to everybody in the GTA Slack group over the weekend that I was going to do this to you, but uh, today's episode is going to be, other than the uh, the brand new philosophy, uh, 
uh, segment at the end with the aforementioned Jennifer Burgess. Uh, the rest of the episode is going to be a trip to America's finest institution of higher learning, Prager University. Um, this is a slightly abusive thing that I'm doing to you guys, but uh, but we're gonna and David later, uh, but we're 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 gonna do it. Uh, do we have the first of the PragerU videos that we are gonna watch today? Yeah, yeah. Which was the first one I wanted to? The capitalism and socialism. Yeah. There we go. Maybe we should damn. <laughs> socialism. We can sum up each economic system in one line. Capitalism is based on human greed. Socialism is based on human need, right? No, wrong, so wrong. It's exactly backwards. And I'll prove it to you. Been on Amazon lately? Each of the thousands of products Amazon offers represents the work of people who believe they have something you want or need. If they're right, they prosper. If they're wrong, they don't. That's how the free market works. It encourages people to improve their lives by satisfying the needs of others. No one starts a business making a thing or providing a service for themselves. They start a business to make things or provide services for others. I speak from personal experience. When I was the CEO of the company that owns Carl's Jr. and Hardy's restaurant chains, we spent millions of dollars every year trying to determine what customers wanted. If our customers didn't like something, we changed it, and fast. Because if we didn't, our competitors would, pun intended, eat us for lunch. The consumer, that's you, has the ultimate power. In effect, you vote with every dollar you spend. In a socialist economy, the government has the ultimate power. It decides what you get from a limited supply it decides should exist. Instead of millions of people making millions of decisions about what they want, a few people, government elites, decide what people should have and how much they should pay for it. Not surprisingly, they always get it wrong. Have you ever noticed that late stage socialist failures always run out of essential items like toilet paper? Of course, this isn't a problem for those who have the right connections with the right people. Those chosen few get whatever they want, but everyone else is out of luck. Don't Venezuela, worry, the richest country in South America, is the most recent example of socialism driving a prosperous country into an economic ditch. Now, maybe you think it's an unfair example. I, I'm not sure why, but okay. We'll ignore the fact that leftist activists celebrated it as a great socialist success right up until it wasn't. But what about Western European countries? Don't they have socialist economies? People seem pretty happy there. Why can't we have what they have? Free healthcare, free college, stronger unions. Good question, and the answer may surprise you. There are no socialist countries in Western Europe. Most are just as capitalist as the United States. The only difference, and it's a big one, is that they offer more government benefits than the US does. We can argue about the cost of these benefits and the point at which they reduce individual initiative thus doing more harm than good. Scandinavians have been debating those questions for years, but only a free market capitalist economy can produce the wealth necessary to sustain all of the supposedly free stuff Europeans enjoy. To get the free stuff, after all, you have to create enough wealth to generate enough tax revenue 
to pay for everything the government gives away. Without capitalism, you're Venezuela. In a 2015 speech at Harvard, Denmark's prime minister took great pains to make this point. I know that some people in the US associate the Nordic model with socialism. Therefore, I would like to make one thing clear. Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. So when you point to Denmark as a paragon of socialism, you're really singing the praises of capitalism. The more capitalism, the less socialism you need. Look at America since 2017. A policy of lower taxes and less government regulation, that's more capitalism, has led to a robust economic expansion, something thought impossible just a few years earlier. Unemployment, notably among minority groups, typically most at risk for poverty, is at a generational low. Economic expansion gets people off welfare and into work. That's less socialism. None of this requires a degree in economics. Common sense is all you need. That's why it's so frustrating to see young people praising socialism and criticizing capitalism. It's bad enough that they're working against their own interests, better job prospects, better wages, personal freedom. But they're also working against the interests of the less fortunate. Capitalism leads to economic democracy. Socialism leads to the economic dictatorship of the elite, always and everywhere. So beware what you ask for. You just might get it. I'm Andy Puzder, the author of The Capitalist Comeback for Prager University. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna comedy say gold. Yeah. Absolute comedy gold. I mean, yeah, you know, capitalism does such a great job keeping us stocked with toilet paper. Um, yeah, I'm especially. just came out before 2020. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, I reviewed uh, the. Uh, I, I co-wrote with Nathan Robinson a review of uh, Glenn Beck's book, Argue with Socialists, uh, for, uh, for Current Affairs uh, last summer. And uh, like a hilarious thing at the end of that book is that he, in singing the praises of capitalism, he's talking about how life is so much better than it was 100 years ago. And two of the things he mentions are the Spanish flu uh, and uh, the... Uh, and toilet paper shortages, which, of course, you know, uh, at that point, uh, the United States was dealing with because of uh, supply chain issues that do, in fact, have a lot to do with uh, with profit incentives. That wasn't there were no, uh, you know, there was no American gush plan doing bad, you know, economic planning to uh, to make the toilet paper run out uh, when, the, uh, when the pandemic started. But, yeah, I mean, I guess the two things that immediately come to mind for me about this one um, are one. Uh, there's that awesome uh, double standard where he's talking about Venezuela and uh, Western Europe says, well, look, uh, you know, socialism means Venezuela. And for some reason, you know, socialists don't like it when we talk about Venezuela. But I mean, that's clearly what it means. Uh, and on the one hand, well, there's nothing socialist about Western Europe. And at this point, you know, we, we did a uh, the first, well, formerly Sunday night debate breakdowns. But we did the first Thursday night one. Uh, last last Thursday, and Jake brought up that that classic meme, uh, you know, with the the two guys yelling at each other, uh, and uh, and one of them is you know socialism is awesome. Look at you know whatever it was Sweden, and 
the the other guy says, oh, well, that's not socialism. You know, that's just that's just capitalism with social welfare policies. And so the first guy says, great, can we have capitalism with social welfare policies? The first one says, no, 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 that would be socialism. Uh, and, and that's the definitely the, the vibe I get for this video because um, at the height of Hugo Chavez's welfare state, you can look this up, the proportion of Venezuelans employed uh, sorry, I think I froze up for a second. At the height of Hugo Chavez's welfare state, the proportion of Venezuelans employed by the public sector was actually lower than the proportion of French people employed by the public sector. Um, and much lower than the percentages in the, in the Nordic countries. Uh, so if the you know various uh, European countries that are social democratic success stories aren't socialist, then Venezuela is even less socialist. Uh, I mean, I think the real story there is that it's so uh, if you're in, uh, you know, the imperial backyard uh, and uh, in Latin America, you know, uh, trying to, you know, achieve even very mild social democratic reforms puts you on a collision course, uh, you know, with with certainly the United States and, and also local elites. And, you know, none of this is to deny, you know, the existence of incompetence or mismanagement, you know, uh, you know, within, you know, especially the especially after Chavez died Maduro took over, but, um, but like, clearly you can't blame, you know, the public sector being too big, you know, they're being like, you know, I, I like, even if you don't want to define socialism as like workers control the means of production, even if you just want to define it as state ownership and you want to talk that way, that it comes in degrees. It's not just binary. Well, if so, France is still more socialist. Than, uh, than Venezuela does, so I think the way he's trying to have it both ways there uh, doesn't really uh, doesn't really make sense. Um, you guys have thoughts? Most most of my thoughts are just completely blown out because I'm just like there's just so much, you know. Sorry, um, there's just so like he just kept going like like a rapid pace and and you know he's saying so much uh, uh, about everything and so little about yeah sorry about that yeah <laughs> yeah we have that together jake jake you got anything jump in uh, um well i mean i it's definitely not the first time in which uh just uh, i've seen socialist states just defined by which ones are mismanaged either mismanaged or you know like like you mentioned are um you know suffer um from circumstances outside of their control right um but all, but all that said, I mean, I guess it's interesting. To, I, I've never really watched this stuff because I think, you know, the lack of a desire to torture myself. But um, it, it, it is, um, I remember when we were talking about our debate with, with, with Charlie Kirk and Hassan, we were talking about, you know, creating this narrative. And it is slickly produced. And I could see how it, it, it is creating a, a viable narrative better than even Charlie was able to, um, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to think about, um, you know, how to, how to counter that how to counter that narrative. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, the part about uh, Lars, uh, uh, Lars Ras, uh, Rasmussen, um, that, that really gets me. I mean, we were talking about this a little bit while, you know, so it's, I'm uh, getting my own crack at Charlie at the beginning of October in, uh, in Arizona. So we were watching the Charlie Kirk, Hassan Piker debate last Thursday. Uh, there's no Thursday night uh, debate breakdown this Thursday because I'm going to be on my way to New York, but um, uh, also no regular episode on Monday because I'll be 
coming back. I'll, we'll do some kind of stream on Tuesday so people don't have to wait too long. Uh, but um, so, and, and we'll be doing uh, a couple Thursdays, you know, we'll, we'll be doing the, uh, the Vosh, uh, Charlie Kirk one. But, uh, but one of the things that we we're talking about, I think we're talking about the, the Charlie Kirk, Hassan Piker debate is that you, know, you really see this sort of weird assumption all the time when right-wingers uh, talk about the Nordics that, and I mean, to be fair, the, this PragerU video did less of it, right? Uh, because they at least, there was at least a passing mention of the existence of debates about these things in various European countries. Uh, usually they do this weird shit, like they'll say, oh, Sweden realized, you know, uh, realized that such and such program wasn't working and they had to roll it back as if this were just like this collective, like the Swedish hive mind had just made this technocratic determination and this wasn't a result of ideological struggle and, you know, like right-wing parties, you know, winning and carried out their policies. Um, but um, but I think you do see that, like, Nordic hive mind assumption a little bit when he brings up Lars Rasmussen because, yeah, sure, there's this, like, center-right head of state doesn't want to associate the popular programs in this country with socialism, no shit. Uh, I mean, that's that's like if you're – that would be like if you – if you said, well, you know, like the equivalent would be saying, well, Bernie Sanders says such and such about, you know, about the relationship between social security and socialism and just taking that as decisive, you know, Bernie Sanders said it, you know, this is the mirror, mirror universe version of that, you know, Lars Rasmussen says that there's nothing socialist about this stuff. And of course it's not, I mean, cause you know, they, these are still fundamentally capitalist economies, uh, no, you know, no doubt, you know, that, you know, workers certainly don't run their own workplaces, and, you know, et cetera. But also though, these extensive social democratic welfare states, these did not come out, these did not just like emerge from the hive mind of Nordic culture. Uh, these came about as a result of really fierce class struggle, you know, at, at like, really militant industrial unions allied with, you know, labor and socialist parties, you know, over the course of a very long period of time. These are, these are hard won gains. Um, and, you know, if you talked, you know, if you talk to a Danish socialist of which there are very many uh, of various, you know, shades and degrees of radicalism, instead of talking to Lars Rasmussen, uh, you get a very different story. But, um, we have now uh, one of our very favorite guests. Uh, the so um, not uh, not at all, as I said, uh, from uh, from Slovenia. Uh, I think if I'm if I'm remembering right, uh, this this guy is from. Uh, I, I don't, man. We uh, yeah. So I think I think he. Uh, I think yeah. So I think. Um, I think David Griscom is from uh, I don't know Montana or Connecticut. Or <laughs> Have you ever seen the uh, King of the Hill, um, <clears throat> where Hank Hill basically is confronting his wife about the fact that she's from Montana, and he takes her to see the Alamo, and she's you know is uh, you know is all enheartened because she sees that there's all these different flags of all the other states that fought and died in the island which is like oh look you know there's all these other places you could be from and be a texan he's like well i don't see montana up there <laughs> <laughs> oh that's fantastic um 
Yeah. So uh, David is, of course, the uh, the co-host of uh, Left Reckoning with uh, with a good friend uh, Matt Leck, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you you can see uh, many segments from you know from the first several months of uh, of this show of, of Dave talking about country music. However, um, the the thing that I brought him on to to do now um, might like stretch our friendship to the breaking point. Which is to uh, watch some PragerU videos. I know you're taking me down your dark path, Ben. <laughs> I always say I've been pretty immune for most of it. I mean, even working with Michael for all these years, like Matt and Michael were the ones who watched like the Ruben clips and they present them to me live. I, I spent no time with this at all. So, yeah, <laughs> you're forcing me to do something I don't really like to do very much. All right. So uh, the uh, the first one uh, has to uh, to do with the legacy. Of the person who Prager you, of course, Rosalba regards as our greatest and most important president, uh, who, who would be uh, Ronald uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan. So um, this is called Leo and Layla's Adventures with President Ronald Reagan. Hey, Leo. Hey, Layla. Um, why are you pulling down our neighbor's fence? Today, this is not a fence. Oh yeah? Then what is it? It's the Berlin Wall, and I'm Ronald Reagan, our 40th president. And I guess that means you're here to tear down the Berlin Wall? You got it. I'm gonna set the East Berliners free. Leo, I'm pretty sure that our neighbors aren't from East Berlin. Well, they are today. Whatever you say, Leo. Did you know that Ronald Reagan was one of our most popular presidents? Of course I knew that. And did you know he was California's governor before he was president? Well, duh. Did you know that he started out as an actor? He starred in over 50 movies. Yeah, and he wasn't just an actor either. He was in the military during World War II. Hmm, you know what? He was actually great at a lot of stuff. He played college football. He was also on the swim team. He ran track, too. Plus, he was student body president. And he was totally handsome. Ew. Gross. What the heck, Leo? Boy, I sure wish I could have met Ronald Reagan. Well, why can't you? Because he passed away in 2004 when he was 93 years old. I wasn't even born yet, and now I'll never get to meet him. Jeez, Leo, don't be so dramatic. We can just use my new time travel app to go meet him. Really? Awesome. You just tap here, and away we go. But let me get the settings right before you do that. Ronald Reagan, here I come. Oh, no! Wow, is this what West Berlin looks like? Layla, look at that wall, it's huge. Hey, wait, where's Layla? What the heck, where am I? Oh great, thanks Leo, I better go find him. I can't believe I actually went back in time. Maybe I'll really get to meet Ronald Reagan. Did someone say my name? Wow, you're really President Reagan. Nice to meet you, I'm Leo and I came here from the future. What are you doing here? Nice to meet you, Leo. I'm here in Berlin to stop the communists and end the Cold War. Oh, man. All this talk about communists is making me hungry. Well, Leo, communism makes everyone hungry. People living under communism are often poor and don't have enough money for food. That's why we have to stop it. I guess you're right, but can we have a snack first? I brought jelly beans. Leo, thank you. 
That's my favorite snack. It's too bad Layla isn't here to have some, too. Hey, Mr. Reagan, can I ask you some questions? Of course you can, Leo. Why did they build the Berlin Wall in Germany? That's a good question. We're in West Berlin, which is the free side of Germany. On the other side of the wall is East Berlin, which is occupied by the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, which is communist, built this wall during the Cold War to keep people locked in East Berlin and stop them from going to freedom in West Berlin. We sure are lucky to be on this side. You're right about that, Leo. Why is it called the Cold War anyway? It doesn't seem that cold. It's not because of cold weather. It's called the Cold War because we were able to end the war without using any weapons. A war with no shooting or bombs? How did you do that? Well, everyone was afraid that the United States and the Soviet Union were uh, going to bombs at each other. But thankfully, that never happened. A nuclear bomb would have been terrible. That's a big... Okay. I'll, I'll go along with the last plan. A nuclear bomb would have been terrible. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do want to just clock that uh, the thing that... Um, this extremely convincing portrayal of Ronald Reagan just said before that uh, was that um, was that he won the Cold War uh, without using any violence. So uh, my, my history is a little rusty, David. Is is that true that the uh, Reagan administration didn't do anything Cold War related and violent? Well, ask the Sandinistas. I mean, uh, you know, the the entire history of, of the Cold War, but particularly under Reagan, is just rationing up attentions and just brutal, brutal uh, bloodshed in the name of stamping out communism. I do just want to note, though, um, there is something in this video that has been really interesting to me so far, um, which is you can just see how much Donald Trump has sort of permeated the party. I mean, that's a very, very orange Reagan. Right? <laughs> And even their favorite boy now has to be a little bit more Trump-esque. <laughs> that's, that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, this is like just amazing uh, revisionist history. I mean, if you think about everything the United States was doing in the 1980s, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, funneling guns and money to the Mujahideen in, in, in Afghanistan, uh, you know, like which, you know, included... Uh, like a, a really, like the sort of lunatic fundamentalist faction of that, you know, those forces who kind of became the Taliban who like were, you know, like I think one of their war slogans was they are teaching our women how to read. Uh, uh, there was, uh, there were, of course, the uh, the Contras who you mentioned, the, the terrorists, uh, you know, waging war against the, uh, in 1984, democratically elected Sandinista government in uh, Nicaragua who were, you know, massacring nuns and, you know, and, and, uh, and mining, you know, the, you know, mining the harbors, you know, in, in Nicaragua, not to mention being very involved in, uh, the drug trade, uh, you know, going, uh, going back and forth, uh, between, uh, Central America and the United States, uh, El Salvador, like, you know, I, I think quite a few shots were fired by quite a few people, uh, with at the very least, you know, funding from the Reagan administration. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, it, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is extremely revisionist. I mean, it's no, um, you know, accident that this is a cartoon. I also wanted to to add, not being too nitpicky about the kind of, you know, Reagan uh, lore here, but it is amazing how he's been able to get away with this uh, claim 
uh, that he was the one who entered the Cold War, right? Or that he was the one who was present when the Berlin Wall fell, because um, he wasn't. It was Bush, his uh, his successor, uh, when the wall went down. Yeah, true. I mean, you know, of course, you know, events happened before it, but it's just one of those things where it's like in the American popular imagination, Reagan like gave a great speech, and then everybody was just like, "All right, we're fucking taking this thing down right now." Yeah, the uh, the, the head of uh, the DDR, Hanukkah, like heard Reagan's speech and felt ashamed, and you know, it's like, "Okay, all right, all right, tear down the wall." Uh, yeah, no, that, that is, that is actually really amazing that, uh, you know, like, yeah, you know, Bush had been, you know, president for what, like a year with the, about, uh, yeah, about nine months or something. It was November. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, you know, and then like, uh, you know, the next year, you know, was, was, was the, uh, the, the coup against Gorbachev and the Soviet Union did a dissolvement shortly afterwards. And yeah, I mean, I like, okay, sure. You could say, I mean, if, if you have a, worldview such that this is a good thing which you know i mean i think if you um i think given the apocalyptic level of social you know social breakdown uh in, in some of those countries you know after the after the end of the gold war it can certainly be disputed but if you do i think it's a good thing if you're looking to assign you know credit and prizes for it okay uh sure so yeah Reagan, you know Reagan was president for two terms before that you know you could say but like then like i don't know carter was for four years before that and ford and nixon and, you know like they don't get any of it and i'm pretty sure if um the same amount of time had elapsed since Reagan had taken office and the berlin wall did fall on his watch and then the dissolution of the soviet union all the people who credit Reagan for that would not be giving credit to Jimmy Carter. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, Reagan is just, I think time obviously helps the the myth as well. Uh, Reagan is just, you know, he, he gets to embody all the hopes and dreams of, of the Republican Party. It doesn't really matter uh, how much truth there is uh, to it. I will just add um, two things. One thing is like a program note, like maybe one day it might be fun to watch, but, uh, you know, uh, Werner Herzog. Yeah, it's a really interesting documentary on Gorbachev uh, that you can watch. I would say it's a little uh, um, maybe revisionist. Like uh, uh, he really, really, really likes Gorbachev, but it's a fascinating, fascinating film. It could be fun for a movie night sometime. Um, yeah, no, for sure. But, but two, it, it, yeah. just the way that this is even presented, right? And like we don't have to go through the litany of you know all the problems with the Soviet Union, etc., right? But that, like, it got to this point because of, you know, the Soviets were just against freedom and America was just over here just like, please give freedom a shot. It's just such BS, right? I mean, these, you know, these were extensions of warlike um, aspirations from, like, the United States, right? The United States was trying to topple that system pretty much from the get-go after the end of, of World War II, right? And you don't create a happy, perfect system in those conditions, right? The United States oh, is destabilizing you. Right. I don't know. It's just like the way that it's presented is so ahistorical, obviously. But I think it's just it's wrong itself, too, even in the, the moment of like Reagan and Gorbachev, like having these kind of conversations, because there was a desire on the Soviet side to sort of break down these tensions and to be able to be a part of like the, you know, the global community, quote unquote. Right. Um, and, you know, that's what led in a lot of ways to the to the end of the Soviet Union was this attempt at trying to do it and of course once you know they they reopen and they try to have 
uh, free and fair elections there, the United States didn't want that either um, because they, you know, it was never about democracy or free and fair elections for the United States. It was about the destruction, the eradication of communism and full scale capitalist plunder of, of the Soviet system. Yeah, I mean, before World War II, I mean, Woodrow Wilson literally sent troops uh, to the Soviet Union, you know, to, to aid the White Army in the Civil War. Um, so, uh, so yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think that that's, I think the U.S., um, you know, and, and, and generally, you know, the, the capitalist world's uh, response is is definitely has to be in the mix of, you know, factors that led to that uh system evolving the way that it did, you know, with, with, mm -hmm. uh, with all of its obvious flaws, but also, you know, there's some tension between this and the, the video that we, you know, watched earlier with Andy and, uh, and Jake, uh, because like, I think Prager, you also can't decide how they feel about that. Cause it's like, okay, did the Soviet Union just collapse with the contradictions of its system or was it the Reagan speech, right? Like, yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's the, you know, that's the, the true, like, materialist versus idealist tension, right, man? Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. you know, the good speech ends the system versus, the, you know, the system ending itself. Exactly. All right, let's, uh, let's keep going. Biggest kind of bomb there is. You're absolutely right, Leo. That's why we signed the INF. Oh, I see. Wait, what's the INF? The INF stands for Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Both our countries agreed to sign the treaty so we didn't have to use our bombs. Is that all it took to end the Cold War? Well, no, Leo. We also used our economy to win. Economy? Isn't that money stuff? It sounds really complicated. It's really very simple, Leo. We used a program called Reaganomics to make our economy strong. Mm. We cut taxes so that the government took less oh. of people's oh, hard-earned money away from them, and that led to more people getting jobs. Blech. I don't want a job. I hate work. My sister Layla has a job after school, but I like to play after school. Well, Leo, when you grow up, getting a job and working hard is part of being responsible. I'm sure your sister is working hard to find you right now. Thanks to everyone working hard, the United States economy was so big that the Soviet Union couldn't keep up. You are amazing, Mr. Reagan. You saved everyone's lives and made them better at the same time. Well, thank you, Leo, but the job isn't done yet. We still have one more thing to do. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Yeah, freedom well, look, for did it. <laughs> there you are, Leo. I've been looking for you everywhere. What have you been up to? Hi, Layla. You just missed it. President Reagan and I tore down the real Berlin Wall. Ugh, I can't believe I missed it. You need to be careful when you time travel. My phone battery is almost empty and we need to get back before it's too late. Okay, Layla. Let me say goodbye to Ronald Reagan first, though. Bye, Mr. President. It was nice meeting you. Thanks for beating the communists. Goodbye, Leo. And remember this. It's never too late to fight for freedom. Here we go, Leo. Yay, we're back! Layla, you should have been there when Ronald Reagan told them to tear down the Berlin Wall. It was super fun. It's okay, Leo. I got to do a lot of fun things in the past, too. Like what? Glad you asked, Leo. Well, I went to the White House and met Nancy Reagan, the oh. first lady, and I learned all about their program to keep kids off drugs. Just say no. You've got that right. 
Plus, I went to the Supreme Court and visited one of my role models, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Who was that? She was the first woman on the Supreme Court. She's proof that anyone can become what they want in America. And guess who appointed her? I have no idea. I'll give you a hint. He really likes jelly beans. Ronald Reagan did that too? Man, I'm so glad I got to meet him. Hey, Layla, do you think that I could grow up to be like Reagan? Of course you can. When Ronald Reagan was your age, his family didn't even have plumbing or running water. But you'll have to work hard if you want to be like him. You bet I will. Great. Now why don't you start by fixing that fence before mom and dad get home? I really like that uh, what they had Layla do was uh, meet the women off screen. Like, I don't know. She's, she's off doing some women shit. Don't worry about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, it's it's a side note for them anyway, right? It's just it's like a little arrow in their quiver to, yeah. Because <laughs> it's like the, the kind of like gender arguments for, for Reagan are, are are ridiculous on, on the merits. But, you know, for them, like they just they just want to use them as a little rhetorical, you know, evasion. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, of course, uh, that was, um, you know, that was Prager you, uh, you know, talking about uh, somebody they uh, they do like, but to get a full sense of their, uh -oh, uh, to get a full sense of their educational offerings, we should uh, watch them uh, talk about somebody they don't like. There's also a Prager U educational video about Karl Marx. Oh, this is gonna be good. Yeah. Um, is it, is it, I mean, I, I would imagine, yeah. Oh, here we go. Oh, man, I need the cartoons to really get it. Ideas have consequences, sometimes good, sometimes bad, and sometimes catastrophic, like the ideas of Karl Marx. Born in Trier, Germany in 1818, Marx didn't invent communism, but it was on his ideas that Lenin and Stalin built the Soviet Union, Mao built communist China, and innumerable other tyrants from the Kims in North Korea to the Castros in Cuba built their communist regimes. Ultimately, those regimes and movements calling themselves Marxists murdered about 100 million people and enslaved more than a billion. Marx believed that workers, specifically those who did manual labor, were exploited by capitalists, the people who owned, as Marx put it, the means of production, specifically factories, but who did very little physical labor themselves. Can, can we pause Only a workers' right? revolution. Yeah, this is just like a, a meta comment. There's nothing that drives me crazier than listening to people who, like, I know are about to present like a very skewed view of Marx and Marxism, right? Whenever they use the phrase like means of production, right? It's like that kind of like keyword understanding, right? Like, there's a few things about Marx. It's like you know, invented communism or didn't invent communism, wrote the Communist Manifesto, and this whole thing is about the means of production. Anyway, I just I noticed that from like the critics, they say that terminology way more than I ever hear anybody who's like an actual Marxist talking. No, about that's Marxism. that's true. Uh, like, yeah, you really get the sense that it's one of like, you know, like they've got a little index card and it's like, this is like one of like five things about Marx. They have yeah, exactly. the index card. <laughs> they love that shit. Those communists, they love those means of production, baby. <laughs> Marx wrote in Das Kapital could correct That's another one to Das Kapital. What would that revolution look like? Marx and his collaborator Friedrich Engels spelled it out point by point in the Communist Manifesto. It included the abolition of property and inheritance and the centralization of credit, communication, and transport in the hands of the state. 
and a lot more along the same lines. In other words, the state owns and controls pretty much everything. This notion was widely discussed and debated in European intellectual circles during Marx's lifetime. Like but nothing much came of it until Vladimir Lenin took power in Russia in 1917. This changed everything. Despite its repeated economic failures, Lenin's Russia, which became known as the Soviet Union, became the model for dictators around the world. Wherever Marx's ideas were practiced, life got worse. Not by a little, but by a lot. There is not a single exception to this rule. That's insane. Not the Soviet Union, not Eastern Europe, not China, not North Korea, not Vietnam, not Cuba, not Venezuela, not Bolivia, not Zimbabwe. Wherever Marxism goes, economic collapse, terror, and famine follow. So if cataclysmic failure, meaning terrible human suffering, is the inevitable legacy of Marxism, why do so many people, and now especially young people, defend it? The most common answer Marxism's advocates offer is that they, whoever they are, Lenin, Stalin, Chavez, never really practiced Marxism. They all somehow got it wrong. Marxism, we are told, is, at its essence, about sharing what we have, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, as Marx put it. Maybe that sounds good to you, but what does it mean? Who determines ability? Who determines need? The answer is the state, the ruling elite. Under Marxism, that's who has all the power. That's why the truth is this. Marxist dictators like Lenin, Mao, and Pol Pot really did get Marxism right. They wanted absolute power, and Marxism gave them the way to get it. Karl Marx never had to face the consequences of his theories. He lived most of his adult life breathing the free air of London, England, living off the generosity of his collaborator and patron, Ingalls, who, as it happens, inherited his money from his wealthy merchant father. Marx spent his days in the reading room of the British Museum, researching and writing. Although he was obsessed with the term scientific, he was never able to marshal data to prove his theories. There's a good reason for this. There was no data to prove his theories. For all his time in the library, Marx couldn't find any evidence to suggest that capitalism, the free exchange of goods and services through privately owned business, was a passing phase. Throughout the industrial age, working conditions constantly improved and wealth expanded. Marx had to rely on outdated reports to make his case. And even then, he had to manipulate the data to get it to conform to his predetermined theories. But Marx really had no interest in proving his theories. He knew that they could be put into practice only by brute force. He said so himself. Of course, in the beginning, communism cannot be affected except by means of despotic inroads, he wrote. His ends could be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. All existing social conditions. That's religion, family, personal possessions, freedom, and democracy. They all had to go in order to achieve Marx's vision of an earthly paradise. But since few people give up their liberties and property voluntarily, creating a Marxist state has always required guns, prisons, and summary executions. Marx's many disciples from Lenin on never considered this a problem. Some, like revolutionary poster boy Che Guevara, considered it a bonus. I don't need proof to execute a man, Che is said to have boasted. I only need proof that it's necessary to execute him. If you're still a fan of Marxism after all the death, suffering, and destruction it's caused, that's your right. But own up to it. Don't hide behind the it's never really been tried line. It has.
I'm Paul Kengor, Professor of Political Science at Grove City College for Prager University. My man's yeah. bringing back the Caesar haircut over there. <laughs> yeah, um, I thought it, like when they were going through, so I mean, there are two things here, right? One is that like almost nothing, like there are like 45 seconds of marks in this video. But um, most of it's, you know, most of it's about the... And uh, also for, for accusing him of uh, not using enough data, almost nothing I saw there was cited or, you know, any no, form of proof no, to any of their claims. But keep no. going. Yeah, yeah, right. No, for sure. I mean, like there was, because like there were a lot of, you know, claims there that like are not like general knowledge. Everybody would, you know, agree to you know, things that, you know, would have been nice to, would have been nice to see a little bit, right? You know, that, um, you know, the claim that there's nothing in the three volumes of capital that, you know, that, that, that counts as, as data, or maybe there was, but it was manipulated in what way, we don't really know. Yeah. But also like half of it, like most of it, more than half was on the 20th century communist states. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, there, there was no, I mean, there was this kind of mention of Marxists, you know, who, who, who didn't like, you know, who, who criticisms of them, but they don't really say why, right? You're left in the dark about what the criticisms were. And also, as they were going through the list of, you know, of, of the states and said, you know, it totally made things worse here, 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 and here. I kept thinking, man, they could have the balls to include Cuba in that list, because that would be, that would be something, right? Like, uh you know, say that, uh, you know, pre-1959 to, uh, you know, to uh, to the, the, the decades after, you know, that, that, you know, healthcare and infant mortality and doctor-patient ratio and uh, literacy, you know, like that, it's like, you know, <laughs> racial integration. It's like, no, nothing good happened in Cuba. They completely would have been better off if Batista instead. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's the underlying argument too. I mean, could you imagine a continuation of you know czarism in Russia having been you know a positive experience for folks? I mean, to yeah, to say what they're saying, I think is is ridiculous. Um, specifically about you know China, Russia, um, and and Vietnam. Um, yeah, well, especially like okay, so China. And this this does actually put it in pretty sharp relief, like the the issue with this, because like they don't consider it even as a possibility that yeah. anything that was anything that was done in any of these states uh, differed from you know the original politics of Marx or Marxism. So fine, let's play by that rule, right? Whatever happened in any self declared communist state uh, totally aligns, you know, with with uh, you know with with what Marx advocated. Great. So that would include. Like China in the last forty years, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, if so, right? Like that, like that is, you know, just in terms of rapid economic development, people going from, you know, living in peasant huts to modern apartments, you know, like that. That's that's what it, that's probably the greatest success story for that in the history of the world. Um, you know, in a really weird hybrid system that we would have tons of criticisms of, no doubt. But like. Also, I mean, I don't know. Why doesn't that count? Yeah, no, I mean, but this is what they, they do. And I mean, I would imagine many of the people watching this are like sympathetic, uh, you know, to, to our views on, on, on you know, on Marx and, and Marxism and, and this history. But why they do, why do they do this tactic? 
right? Um, I'm, for one, I'm not somebody who's afraid to talk about the Soviet Union or China, and I will go toe-to-toe with all these guys about this kind of stuff, right? right? But they do it to distract um, from, from Marx and Marxism, because what immediately happens for people like us, we immediately get into this kind of conversation where we're sort of forced to, like, defend a hundred years of, of social movements and conflict in different societies, right? Which is a difficult position, sure. um, and also, uh, you know, to be in. Like just like on a you know on this you know on the, the scale of the argument it's like too big right, um, but it's also it's just an impossible conversation to have on any meaningful level right. And so what they really do is they kind of disrupt the the fundamental truths as to why Marx and Marxism are attractive to people right. Primarily um, by exposing the fundamental flaw and lie of capital society right, which is that you are free. You know, one of the things that was so is, and I think you and I both agree on this, like Communist Manifesto is a really incredible text, right? Sure. Because it exposes both what's happening to people on the, the shop floor, right? How their wages are being, how they are being exploited. They're not getting paid for the work that they're putting into, um, you know, in, into production. And then when they leave, they are then preyed upon by the landlord, the shopkeeper, the, uh, I can't remember the other folks who are coming after these, you know, 19th century workers, right? Um, but, you know, it's basically exposing this fact that under capital society, you are getting exploited at the job, and then you leave. And then because of all these other things that are made to be extremely expensive, things that used to be publicly controlled or free, right, or have now been enclosed, right, are now private property that you have to buy or rent from somebody. By exposing that, Marx, it reveals this fundamental um, inequity of of capitalism right what is that if you're a worker oh boy it's going to be really really hard to get ahead and if you're somebody who owns things this system is designed to benefit you right and what marx does with that truth is he turns it into a political question instead of just an economic question um and that's why he is somebody who you know is extremely important you know then and today um, and that's why they try to do everything, even in that video, to avoid like dealing with like the fundamental like points of Marxism and like why Marx is an attractive thinker to folks, and instead try to focus on like, oh, well, these are the excesses of this criticism, right? So, like again, I'm somebody who will you know talk and 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 really wrestle with like the truth and the reality of like the Soviet Union and China with folks, um, you know. So I'm not afraid of those conversations. Um, but like what's really important, though, is that they're actually they're trying to prevent you from taking that analysis that Marx was writing then to, to a contemporary uh, society today. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think it's also really telling that, you know, they've tried out the means of production at the beginning. Yeah, uh, sorry. But <laughs> That's all, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt yeah, you again. Yeah, if you're just somebody who just is casual, casually like. I don't know, bumping around ideas and hearing about Marxism, right? Those are the terms as like, you know, means of production. And then basically the workers are being abused, right? And there's right. no like, there's it doesn't ever go beyond there, right? And most people, you know, they're just how we are, right? We just sort of have surface, surface level understandings of things. And PragerU like exists um, not to debunk those kind of surface level understandings, but to try to cement them, right? To get like some professor of political science on your intelligence, like, hey, you know, your half-assed ideas about what Marx and Marxism are are actually true, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And so also though, you know, the means of production come up for a minute at the beginning, but then like kind of forget about it. It's like, okay, so 
what did Mark's thought should be should be done with these means of production? You would know for this video, right? Yeah. You just knew all it really tells you is that Mark's advocates some kind of change or another and thinks it's going to uh, have to be implemented by force and violence, which sounds bad. Um, I, I do really like the Communist Manifesto, although I also wish that someday one of these guys would, would read a second uh, thing by Marx. Uh, you know, like... You know, critique of the goth program maybe would be nice, or you know, like that. That that would also take you a whole whole hour. Um, but um, but what what way that like the fact that it is just like these sort of vague nuggets, and maybe they skim through the Communist Manifesto. It's like yeah, right. So in 1848, uh, when uh, continental Europe was entirely ruled by various you know kings and emperors. Uh, and Great Britain had some quasi-democratic processes, but also the great majority of the, you know, certainly the working class population didn't have the vote. Um, then, yeah, his, his position was that, you know, like violent, you know, like insurrectionary tactics were the only way that you could over, overthrow that system at that time. Uh, but also there are tons of places in the 1880s and 90s, you know, when, when, when Marx and then Engels, you know, say things like, yeah, in advanced capitalist democracies where workers have the vote, like, you know, like like Great Britain, uh, you know, you could have socialism come about by a socialist party, you know, winning power electorally. Now, they did worry that, that capitalists would respond to that the way that slave owners responded to the election of Lincoln which, you know, I think the 20th century shows not an unreasonable concern, see Salvador Allende. Uh, but, like, that's an incredibly misleading characterization of their, you know, like, I mean, I, I think that it's it's complicated. I think they said a lot of different things over the course of their lifetime about transition to socialism and how that yeah, yeah. works. It's not always obvious how to fit it together, but, I mean, certainly this is like a two-dimensional cartoon caricature of that. Yeah, I mean, I think like what's frustrating and, and like maybe might well, it might seem to some people like why you and I are tiptoeing around things is because there are so many raging debates among amongst like Marxists right. and socialists on these things that you don't want to sit here and be like, this is the definitive thing that like Marx said or Marx meant, right? Um, which is why it's so amazing to watch these guys say it, say it so, so clearly. Um, but it's like one of those things where it, you almost have to just like treat it all surface level like they do, right? Um, I'm amazed that they didn't say, for example, dictatorship of the proletariat because that's yeah, a right. that's a favorite one they used for. Think that would make it out to the index card. Uh, what? You'd think that would make it out to the index card? Oh, absolutely. And, and I would just say, like in that context, um, you know, consider like what the opposite reality is, right? When Marx is talking about the dictatorship of the proletariat, he's talking about you know society working for working people working for the proletariat he compared like and, and to, to consider that like think about what we live under right now we live under the dictatorship of the bosses you live under the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie like look at what just happened in this pandemic for example right the pipes of money that were coming from the federal government they just don't flow to everyday people in the way that they did to like major corporations and banks and things like that right because this entire system from property law um you know to just like stimulus in general functions in a way to benefit that class right um 
And like, that's what they're, you know, talking about when they're talking about like, re like, you know, smash, you know, smashing the state or like, uh, you know, just you upending everything that exists, right? Because it's this fundamental understanding that Marx has that these things didn't all develop by like accident um, to work out this way. It's a kind of recognition that these things developed with the very specific goal in mind, um, which was to exploit working people as much as you can get away with and still have a functional society. No, totally. And, and I think also, uh, I mean, you know, dictatorship and proletariat is one of those things that it's a it's an expression that Marx and Engels yeah, yeah. thousands of pages use like three or four times. Maybe yeah, exactly that's true. A little, more, a little more if you include the limbs, maybe, but like not much more. And um, and uh, and yeah, I think like trying to break apart exactly what that you know uh, you know what that phrase meant to them. Uh, I mean, like that's you know that's like something that. You know, if we're Marx scholars, we could sit here and have an argument about that for the next two hours, you know, but like one yeah. thing that you definitely, because again, it's it's ambiguous, there's room for, you know, just like there's tons of room for disagreement. But also, though, one big clue is that uh, is that they did actually point to one actually existing thing as a as an example of what a dictatorship of the proletariat would look like in a transitional post-revolutionary society. And that was the Paris Commune, yes. uh, which, which was not like proto-Stalinism was actually uh, ultra-democratic. Uh, mm -hmm. That like the things, if you read the Civil War in France, another very short Marx pamphlet, you know, could, could read it in an afternoon. Uh, but if you read the Civil War in France, the, uh, the things that, you know, Marx praises about the Paris Commune are that, um, you know, that they uh, made every state official recallable by their constituents at any time for any reason. Yeah. And there were, uh, abandoned factories that were turned over to workers' associations to run as you know cooperatives, presumably, and you know, and and, and so it seems like the features that, that appeal to them about the commune are kind of the opposite of the scare story that people get uh, when they hear that phrase, uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah, I think that's yeah. I think that's a hundred percent on 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 point, and I would also add, you know, to all of this as well. Because um, we've just sort of honed on on a couple of things, and, and Marx is like the other fundamental distinction too that Marx does. Um, again, that they're not going to interact with in that kind of video um, is like the fundamental reality that we live in a class-based society, and in fact, that classes are um, how most of, of human history has been sort of governed. Not entirely. That's something that I think a lot of people misunderstand. But if you look at a society and you look at the different classes that have developed in it, you're going to have a good understanding at least as to where the conflicts are in that society and can maybe see uh, in what direction that they're they're going. Right. And that's like the kind of like understanding of, of history. Again, it's it's just a refusal um, to deal with Mars. I mean, I always like and I know you like like Hitchens um, as well in the sense that it's kind of, you know, <laughs> as a complicated figure i always yeah. sort of liked you know hitchens saying that like even not believing in like the potential of, of socialism or communism that he would still consider himself to be a marxist right because it's like a way of analysis and, and viewing the world um, no, I mean, yeah there's actually a place uh in fact uh during the worst period of hitchens's politics uh like which makes it like all that much funnier to, to see it show up there uh, there's a uh, this exchange that he had with Norman Finkelstein in like 2004, uh, where uh, where uh, where he actually like brings up there 
uh, like it's it's sort of an aside, but he's like, no, I mean, I, I still believe in the Marxist theory of, of, of history. And, and he even like mentions like the G.A. Cohen book, you know, Karl Marx's theory of history and defense. And, you know, it's like, no, I mean, I think this is an accurate tool for understanding, you know, how history is. So amazing. You know, even if even if I no longer think that it's a, you know, viable, you know, political program, what he thought about that is is ambiguous. But um, but yeah, no, for sure. He actually also has a really good essay. I think it's inarguably um, about like Marx's uh, career as a journalist. That that's that's just a that's just an aside. But I, I really recommend no, that. That is a great essay. I remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's the one where he says like um, you know journalists like talk about you know writing the first draft of history. Karl Marx is perhaps the only one who ever really did. Uh, <laughs> but, um, Fun fact, by the way, most people don't know this. Uh, the uh, the very first book with Christopher Hitchens' name on the cover. I don't. Okay, 1971. Uh, it's uh, it's called uh, uh, Karl Marx on the Paris Commune, and it's on the 100th anniversary of the Commune. It's like a collection of his writings about Hitchens wrote the introduction. So um, there you go. Um, <laughs> like fun, bizarre fact. It took me like the longest time and I was writing that book to like, you know, like it's not on, you know. Are we able to get a copy? I, I was eventually able to get it by interlibrary loan and then like copy and scan it. But like that's 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 what it that's that's what it took. That thing is beyond out of print. It's not on any of the bookshare websites, you know, but uh but yeah, all right. So uh you know it's 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 been fun talking about um, you know Christopher Hitchens and, and, and Karl Marx, uh, but uh, the last video I want to watch is about uh, perhaps uh, the uh, the greatest and most important philosopher who's ever lived. Uh, Jake, we uh, we have this uh, fired up. There we go. Oh Lord, who is John Galt? This is one of the most famous questions in modern literature, even today. Over 50 years after it was written, you'll hear people asking it. Why? Because it recalls the riveting suspense story, heroic characters, and powerful ideas portrayed in the best-selling novel Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Born in St. Petersburg, Russia on February 2, 1905, Rand became one of the most celebrated authors and philosophers of the 20th century. Her most famous novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, still sell hundreds of thousands of copies every year around the world. Rand lived through the early years of the Russian Revolution, saw her father's pharmacy business confiscated by the Bolsheviks, and experienced the horrors of communism firsthand. She longed to emigrate to America. In 1926, she did, and never looked back. To Rand, the United States meant freedom. She saw the founding fathers as heroes. They created a country based on individual rights, man's right to his own life, to his own liberty, to the pursuit of his own happiness, she said, means that every individual has a right to exist for his own sake, neither sacrificing himself to others, nor sacrificing others to himself, nor to the government. The practical results of the American system, Rand said, could be seen in the skyline of New York City. America's skyscrapers, she noted, were not built by public funds nor for a public purpose. They were built by the energy 
initiative and wealth of private individuals for personal profit. And instead of impoverishing the people, these skyscrapers, as they rose higher and higher, kept raising the people's standard of living. Rand advocated pure capitalism, which she described as a system in which the government acts only as a policeman that protects men's rights. No bailouts, no special favors for big business, no government intervention into the economy. When people are free to produce and trade, and when the government is limited to protecting rights, everyone benefits. Individuals thrive. Societies prosper. How do we know this? Compare freer, more capitalist societies to less free, more statist ones. In Rand's day, America compared to the Soviet Union, West Germany to East Germany, more recently, South Korea to North Korea, Colombia to Venezuela. Such differences were painfully obvious to Rand. So were their causes. In Atlas Shrugged, she showed how easily a free society can collapse into a dictatorship. The heroine, Dagny Taggart, works tirelessly and brilliantly to save her family's railroad business, while ever-increasing government interventions destroy businesses and crush the economy. Meanwhile, one by one, the top producers across various industries mysteriously disappear. No one knows where they have gone. The only clue is a question they leave behind. Who is John Galt? As the economy crumbles, how do politicians, bureaucrats, and academics react? They blame the greedy businessman and decry the profit motive and free markets. Their solution? More government intervention, which of course only makes the problem worse. Sound familiar? Atlas Shrugged is a cautionary tale about pursuing equality over excellence, state control over free markets, but it's also about the power of the individual and the power of reason. The individual's reason in mind, Rand argued, is his tool of knowledge, his only means of understanding what is true or false, how the world works, what is good or bad for his life. This is the theme of Rand's work more broadly. In order to thrive, to achieve happiness, the individual must think for himself and live by the judgment of his own mind. To do this, people must be free, free to voluntarily exchange ideas, goods, and services for mutual benefit, free to speak their minds without fear. For this, she regarded capitalism not only as the best, but as the only moral social system. Capitalism does not tell men to suffer, but to pursue enjoyment and achievement, she argued. Capitalism does not preach passivity, humility, resignation, but independence, self-confidence, self-reliance. Above all, Rand emphasized, capitalism does not permit anyone to expect or demand the unearned. Is this the system America lives under now? No, said Rand. She called capitalism the unknown ideal because it has never been fully implemented, even in America. Ayn Rand's ideas on capitalism, individualism, and reason have attracted millions of people to her novels, essays, and lectures, and still do. Who is John Galt? I'm Gloria Alvarez with the Objective Standard Institute for Prager University. This video. That's awesome, man. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite things about this, I'm going to point this out in the chat, is, okay, so they said that Rand immigrated to the United States in 1926, 
And, you know, there's all this prose poetry about these skyscrapers, you know, that she saw when she was getting there, the glories of, you know, the this mm-hmm. private profit system. Uh, this is three years before, you know, the 19, you know, 1929 and the beginning of the Great Depression. Yeah. <laughs> no, that is that is pretty on point. And like people forget too, like um, not to open up the the Bitcoin thing here, but you know, whenever I, I warn people about you know some of the kind of excesses of that, I remind them that like when the stock market crashed here in the U.S., like you could read like you can find them like old newspaper articles, and it's just advertisements like buy stocks, like no downside, like only wealth, right? And like the problem was with that is like too many people, right, are you know pursuing their own pleasure over anything else right obviously i don't blame the stock market crash on everyday people just trying to you know sure. make a little bit of money but it's like it shows that that kind of ideology because like what is annoying to me about ayn rand and the, like her big defenders is they try to make it seem like it's an egalitarian philosophy right like it's for everybody in the sense that like you can like try to achieve your own greatness they do admit that only some people will achieve it but they say the door is wide open for folks right but in in like in American capitalism, when we have seen like you know these kind of things open up to everyday people. It's too like honestly to try to bring in more suckers to buy the shit from you before the thing collapses, right? <laughs> I know they have their counter arguments as to why that happens, but I'm saying like it's not egalitarian at all, right? No, no, it's I mean it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely not you know, and, and I think that you get. Uh, uh, and, you know, I, I think a lot of people who, who got into Iran, like, you know, they understood that perfectly well. Uh, that's uh, like Ludwig von Mises said, I, I think, like, wrote, wrote her a letter where he's like, oh, you're great because, like, you dared to tell people that, like, they suck and they're terrible, you know, and, and it's the uh, these few captains of industry, you know, who, uh, who make everything great. Well, the thing that's ironic about Ayn Rand is, like, if you look at her as, like, an ideology of, of capitalism, I would have to say, even though she has Russian roots, like, specifically, like, a, a particular type of American capitalism, um, you know, she is such, like, a, a freakish excess of the ideology that, like, she really is more of a coping mechanism for, like, masses than, like, truly the engine of folks um, who are titans of industry, right? Like even somebody like Mark Cuban, who loves Ayn Rand, who names his boats after her and all this kind of stuff. You know, at the end of the day, uh, when things start getting bad, they want there to be increased government spending in any kind of crisis like the one that we just had, right? Like all of this kind of narrative, like we don't like gov- government intervention goes away the moment that they need uh the government to socialize losses in moments of capitalist crisis i I mean the most vivid illustration of this uh is that uh, i think this was actually the very last uh debunk i did for for tmbs before michael passed away uh is that uh the uh beginning of the pandemic uh the ayn rand institute actually put its hand out for uh, ppe money (laughs) (laughs) yeah This is the thing that, like, you know, not to get too, like, nerdy about this, but this is, like, people need to understand, like, that's what the role of the state is in capitalism, too, right? Is, like, to maintain and and, and make sure that the financial system is operating without kicks. And that's something that, like, capitalists themselves want and they desire, right? So these kind of ideologies that they try to make to sell um, their kind of, like, naked power grabs, um, people, you, you, you've got to treat them like the trash that they are, really. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so I, I think there, I think their excuse for that, which was also uh, Rand's excuse uh, for, um, for being willing to go on benefits personally uh, is that as like a taxpayer who, you know, who'd been uh, their money back, you know, that's, that's, that she'd, uh, she paid into the system, which like, you know, I think it should take about 10 seconds of thought to see that that could be a much more general justification uh, for, uh, for the welfare state. Uh, but, uh, but possibly the best thing about this video is the contrast with the last one we watched, mm -hmm. because uh, you'll notice that uh, one of the things that she said is that capitalism has never really been tried, not even in America. Yeah, I know. I, I noticed that too. And I mean, I mean, that's the, the, the fundamental, um, you know, that's the baseline for, for their, these kind of arguments that are coming from PragerU is they are meant for, for people who have like extremely short attention spans. Right. And it's whatever is the most convenient at the moment. Like they're not trying to build up like one truth, right? Like a true ideology that you can stand on its own. Right. It's filled with contradictions because again, it's in the most conservative thought at this point. Um, and I would argue probably historically as well, too, is to make the unacceptable seem acceptable, right? To just make just a clear excesses of class society seem to be natural um, and and to try to discredit any kind of criticism <laughs> of, of the current state of things. No, exactly. I mean, that's that's the uh, the uh, one of the big threads uh, running through Michael's book against the web about uh, how reactionaries always try to either mythologize or naturalize yes. uh, historically contingent hierarchies, um, which, yeah, I mean, Ayn, Ayn Rand is, is one of the most uh, extreme versions of that, right? Because I mean, it's this like crazy worldview that like even she knows is inconsistent with normal human values. Uh, that, uh, Can we just yeah. say something on that really quick on human yeah, values? Because you know, I don't, I, I don't swim in those waters as much anymore about like, you know, real true philosophy. But I think, uh, you know, Obama's famous line, right, was like, you know, you didn't build that, like talking about the roads and all that kind of shit, right? That's the constant, the typical like liberal argument against it, right? And fair enough. Um, but I think another example, um, I think that it's useful to push back against these like pure individualists um, is another communal um system that we all interact with which is language right like everything like that's something that is like given to you from the society from the community from all the people around you it allows us to communicate with one another it's 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 inherently social and it's something um that you cannot replicate on an individual level right it's something that you utilize like from the moment that you become verbal right which is really when you enter into society at large um and you can use it uh you know to your advantage for your entire life right and it's something that precedes capitalism of course right and shows that as creatures as as like you know as a as beings like we we are communal we need to be in communication with one another i don't know like i can't imagine some kind of like iron rand parent be like i'm not going to teach my kid like how to speak right they need well, to figure you it know, out themselves. yeah right it's like like you remember the uh simpsons episode with the uh when they do the musical version of streetcar named desire they have the uh, iron rand school for tots you know, where they explain that, uh, that you know, when the baby asks for a pacifier, they're saying, I'm a parasite, you know, I, I won't do that you. <laughs> so, yeah, there's this obvious disconnect with normal human values, but, uh, but, it's, but the whole point of this worldview is to provide some sort of romanticized justification for, for what, you know, otherwise couldn't be justified.
Yeah. And I also just have to, you know, do my good lefty point about the skyscrapers in New York. Not only is it before the the collapse, but come on, man. Like those didn't like that wealth did not just like uh get developed there through like some people's genius right it's like through slavery and through occupation i mean south america essentially was turned into an open pit mine and for people who have not read open veins of latin america i highly suggest it because you might recognize that the history is one of like exploitation but until you really realize what's happened just you know like resources and and, and people what's been stolen from them for centuries upon centuries to create the wealth of both the united states and europe at large right you would you you will recognize that any kind like if you are to make any kind of historical narrative about the skyscrapers of new york it's like those are the crowns that have been stolen from uh, the labor of workers across this country uh, across people who were forced into slavery um and then people who were uh you know had their homes taken from them and all of the wealth and, and mineral resources of their communities you know oh, literally yeah. ripped from the ground you know it didn't just come because some guy fucking invented the cotton jam rand's examples were all like hilariously off key like that like like in atlas shrugged right you know who you know john galt you know is uh, that's the uh that's that's all on a rail like on train you know railroads and it's like okay hold on just a second in the Ayn Rand utopia uh where the government couldn't intervene in the economy in any way and property rights were, were sacrosanct could you even have a railway system oh yeah no because it doesn't work like, 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 so, so any farmer who didn't want to sell, I mean, what would this railroad lat route look like? Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, for people who aren't familiar, like the U.S. government had to get involved because letting a free market system run that was a complete nightmare. And it was just not going to be able to do what we wanted to do as a society, right? Which, which was to expand um, westward um and you know with all the problems that come with it obviously but i'm just saying like you know this was a moment where like the government said if we want to achieve these kind of social goals and be able to have industry and and an economy like the, that we would like to have which would be you know a dominant industrial society um uh, we have to socialize these these railroads because if we just use basic like free market economics on it it, the, the, it doesn't work because it's, it monopolizes way too quickly the prices get absurd um you know it's another reason why we have the post office and all these other kind of things. no I, I mean absolutely right i mean this is why like yeah that uh charlie kirk uh debate with the thought, you know watched uh watched last week you know he, he makes a big deal saying like if if you know markets work everywhere else you put that aside uh you know why should they work in healthcare? it's like well i mean not they don't work all goods are equally elastic and so like there are, you know, if, if you have a, uh, uh, like like if the uh, if the uh, coffee shop across the street raises its prices too much, you might not go get coffee there. But like, you know, you're gonna buy your EpiPen no matter what. I mean, the best example. I mean, it's like, you know, rural hospitals, man. Right. I mean, it's a great example of how market incentives like do not really work out for people. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's again, it's just like it's operating from a. You know their their own their own world and i also have to say like as someone who lived in new york for a while um when you walk through i mean maybe this did uh 
uh, maybe this was this is FDR, so maybe it's not fair. Yeah. Doesn't know. Like there are so many monuments back to a time when America was very interested in building public buildings for these of the people, right? The public libraries and and, and the university systems alone. Um, like there's a lot actually of of things that were done. Um, just you know, just with the goal of public good and not just for somebody's profit. That are are just as beautiful parts of of our history and our skyline. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Yeah, it is. Uh, so I'm going to New York this weekend. It's going to be very strange uh, to uh, to to be there and uh, without having some uh, some David Griskin bar hopping in the uh, in the weekend. That's 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 going to uh, that'll you know go back to your apartment at the end of the night and you know uh, you know and uh, uh, drink bourbon and listen to country music. That's that's such a you know part of my uh, you know typical, <laughs> experience of those trips, but. Um, a uh, fun fact, by the by the way, uh, if you haven't seen it, I think we actually might have talked about this before. But for anybody who hasn't seen this, uh, Christopher Hitchens and John Judas actually did a debate in 1986 with two people from the Ayn Rand Institute, which is which is great. Oh yeah, it's it's a phenomenal debate. And while we're throwing things out to people too, uh, I can't remember. Oh, you know, I think I've sent this to you. You debated him. He's um, God damn it, I can't remember his Darren name. Brooks. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen his debate with uh, Leo Panich? Oh, no. I... Oh, I'll have to send it to you. I think Matt and I did a, like a kind of breakdown of it on our show. We did. I just can't remember if it's for patrons or not. But um, you can find it. It's Leo Panich, Yarbrook. And I can't remember um, the uh, the woman who I believe she's a Tory MP. Um, so basically, it's Leo Panich versus Yar, Yar, Yar Jesus Christ, Brooks um, and uh, this, this uh, Tory MP. And it's about socialism, right? It's like it's socialism practical. Um, and it's a really, really, really frustrating debate just in the sense of like the way that it's framed from the get-go is just not going to, to work um, because the, the moderator's angry at Panich. Brooks is just spouting a bunch of bullshit. And the, the Tory MP is talking about how uh, uh, Ethiopia is uh sorry not ethiopia nigeria uh is is a socialist country um <laughs> which panish has a good retort in where he says it's hard to imagine a socialist country where shells it's a really good debate despite like the interlocutors being terrible because i think panish um finds and actually does a really great job of, at explaining at least how I envision and understand socialism to be, is, which is that it's not a set of policies, but rather a process, right? Like the policies are certainly part of the process, but it's about building, you know, workplace democracy, workers' power, et cetera. And it's just thinking about it as a set of like policies that you implement. So it's like, okay, the country's 60% socialist, blah, 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 um, is, is really absurd. And that's what they try to make you do a lot because Sorry, like a lot of these other ways of viewing the world being a, you know, a, a typical liberal or conservative, like they just are not that dynamic of philosophies compared to, to Marxism and socialism. Anyway, long winded, uh, but a very, very, very uh, passionate plea for people to watch that debate because this is a good one. Yeah, well, I will definitely have to do some kind of breakdown of that. that, that I think I can resist. You know, your book, um, like he... Uh, you know, like he debated Bhaskar a bunch of times, and I know Bhaskar's got like sort of a weird soft spot for him. But like the uh, the time I uh, uh, the uh, the time the time I debated him, like by the end he was he was accusing me of wanting to to take away his television set. So, uh, 
I remember that because you were debating him and I was coming on to do my my segment and I was in the waiting room for a lot longer than I wanted to be. Um, and not only was I in the waiting room for a long time, I was also listening to some fucking asshole like screaming about how you're going to come for your television. His television. <laughs> awesome. All right. Uh, thanks, brother. Got to do this good soon. Yeah, man. It's good hanging out. So that uh, was David Griscom. I should check out uh, his and Matt Lex show, uh, Left Reckoning. Uh, we are going to do one more segment uh, before we go to the post game uh, for uh, patrons. So while we were talking about Ayn Rand, uh, let's look at a clip of her talking about Emmanuel Kant. The day you're supposed to apologize to every naked savage anywhere on the globe because you are more prosperous because you've earned your money. You have to feel guilty and apologize for it while he hasn't and doesn't intend to learn from you. He just wants your money. We're taught, why are we taught? Because the ruling philosopher today in Harvard and everywhere else is Immanuel Kant. And that's the real villain of our age. It's not Karl you mean, Marx. You mean he's the one, huh? He is the Kant one. Kant is the one. Okay. It's not Karl Marx and it's not even religion. So I do not approve of religion, as you know. But those are not the villains. The villains is Immanuel Kant, who preached that man's mind is not valid, that the things you perceive are not there. They're not real. Things in themselves, as he preached, are something which exists in another dimension. Your world is only phenomenal as he called it, and then there is this noumenal world which you cannot perceive in any way, whatever, and that noumenal world is the true reality. Only you can't perceive it, so you better live here on Earth and do your duty. And uh, your duty is some kind of voice that comes from these other dimensions which you can't know. Well, how does he know? He doesn't tell you. But he tells you that uh, morally, you have to do your duty. What does your duty consist of? Of doing things in which you can take no possible interest and no advantage to yourself. You know that he is even worse than an altruist. An altruist would tell you, you shouldn't be happy, but you should sacrifice for other people and then your moral. Kant goes beyond it. He says, if you do things because you have any goal, whatever, even the welfare of others. Your uh, action is not moral. Or as he puts it, it has no moral significance. To be truly moral, you should do things out of which you get nothing whatever, neither for yourself nor for others. You can achieve that kind of uh, being total zero offered for being eaten by any cannibal than your moral. Now that's the philosopher who rules today's life. If that is what the universities are preaching, Kant himself and all the endless variations of him and the derivatives from him, all modern philosophy are little illegitimate Kantians, if you know what I mean. If that's what children are taught, once they leave college, what do they bring to life? What you see today, we're kind of reaching the visible climax of Kantianism. They take dope, they try to kill their mind in every way possible. They leave range of the moment, they have no values, 
no goals, and no selfishness. Those are terribly unselfish because I haven't got one independent idea in the world. The philosophies of the Western world. All right. Hey. That was, uh, was Ayn Rand. Uh, this uh, is a philosophy professor at Georgia State University. That I am. Uh, Perimeter College. Uh, Jennifer Burgess. Dunwoody Campus. <laughs> um, and uh, I hope that comment about the sad, sad woman, that's not supposed to be me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was about I read. So you seem pretty happy. Uh, so uh, this is going to uh, be a new you know, feature. I'm uh, going uh, to do this. Um, during the last you know, 20, 30 minutes of uh, the show before we go to the post game, uh, as yet unnamed philosophy segment, uh, taking, uh, taking suggestions. I thought it was super awesome, amazing something. Hi, Silver. Uh, Silver Harlow <laughs> says, oh, look, it's Dr. Burgess and her husband, uh, which is one accurate way to put it. Uh, so. That's my favorite way to put it. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, Ayn Rand uh, really, really dislikes Kant. Uh, Kant is the villain. He's a devil. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can see why somebody could believe that Kant is the devil, but this whole numinal, uh, phenomenal thing, I, I don't really see it there so much. Yeah, that... That is a very odd thing for her to focus on. Uh, yeah. Also, I, I've got to say, at the risk of being nitpicky, but you know, we are doing the philosophy segment. We could be yeah, a little nitpicky. Uh, is that uh, I, I don't nitpicking? That's what keeps me employed. <laughs> exactly. Get that. You know, sweet, sweet tenure track job. So uh, uh, your uh, your your adjunct slash podcaster, uh, you, know, uh, you know. That loser husband of mine. Could have health insurance. So, exactly. Uh, yeah, so I I don't believe, I understand, now I'm not a Kant scholar, but I do not believe that Kant thought that the Numina, the things themselves were in a different dimension. I, no, I don't remember any of that either. Yeah. Also not a Kant scholar, but... Yeah, I, I, I don't I, remember him talking about dimensions. I'm pretty sure that's wrong. Uh, in fact, I'm 100% <laughs> sure that that's wrong. So the point is the uh, the numina are things as they are themselves, and phenomena are things as they seem to us, uh, and uh, and that we can only you know have you know knowledge of, of things as they uh, as they seem to us, and so there's a certain respect in which if you know, the, that things in themselves uh, are, they're not in a different dimension. It's just that, you know, it's just that we can only know them insofar as they appear to us. Yeah, which is not really a crazy idea when you start thinking about it. You know, when I bring this up in uh, intro classes, you know, there's usually some, hmm, that's true, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, fun fact about Kant, uh, he did not think that this meant that we can't know anything. Uh, and in particular, he certainly didn't think that we can't know anything about morality. Yeah, that was a whole different, that was a whole different business. 
Yeah, Kant's view uh, is that, so there's theoretical reason, which is when you're trying to figure out the contents of empirical reality, that's where the whole Numina phenomena thing comes up. Uh, but uh, then uh, there's practical reason, uh, which involves both, you know, prudential reasoning, what Kant calls hypothetical imperatives, when you're trying to figure out what you should do in order to rationally advance different goals that you might have. And also uh, categorical uh, imperatives, or actually just the categorical imperative, there only being the one. Uh, <laughs> uh, people who are later listening to this as a podcast and uh, uh, see, uh, see Jen uh, holding up one finger, you know. What? <laughs> but... Um, Yes, if Kant had said you can't know anything about morality, he certainly would have been talking time man. But uh, she can't know anything about morality, or certainly doesn't seem to. But uh, but Kant's position is that uh, we actually can use our reason to figure out uh, the requirements of morality. In fact, that he, reason. Yes. That reason. We have that. We have our reason for a reason. <laughs> Wow. Uh, yeah. But I mean, this is the wit that my students come for every day. So, um, so. No yeah. con jokes. We're not going to get. Oh, boy. There we go. Yeah. The there chat is already full of con jokes, of course. Um, there's a uh, webcomic called Existential uh, Comics, uh, where it's a philosophy themed webcomic, and they've got a little thing at the top. You know, where it's like it, it rolls through. It's like, you know, number of days since last cop can't pun. But yeah, I mean, Kant, Kant thinks that uh, morality just is an extension of, of rationality. That's his view. That if you if you thought about it enough, uh, you you would realize uh, that this is this is the only uh in his view, this is the only internally consistent law you can give yourself, you know, that uh, you're acting freely if you're acting a law that you give yourself. That sounds like something Ayn Rand might sign off on. But uh, the difference is that he thinks there's only one law you could rationally give yourself, uh, which is the categorical imperative. So, uh, so, Kant's, um, uh, so Kant's position on this, uh, we just heard Ayn Rand describe it uh, in her diatribe about, you know, the naked <laughs> savages uh, who, who we're supposed to give everything to. And... I don't think you can say that anymore. <laughs> can you? I mean, I think that's politically incorrect now. Sure. I mean, I'm sure in 1970, whatever, she gave that interview, lots of people found it objectionable. Too. <laughs> did they? Did they find things like that objectionable back then? Some people did, I'm pretty <laughs> sure. I mean, like the American Indian movement was a big thing in the 1970s. I'm pretty uh, sure that I'm pretty sure that nobody who was involved in AIM uh, was very happy to hear I rant, you know, rant about the naked savages. Sure, sure. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but we just heard Iran say that Kant's view is that uh, it's immoral to uh, to do anything uh, that, that that benefits you. Uh, is that actually Kant's view? No. Okay. Well, no, well, it is not. This is why I brought in the fancy tenure track philosophy professor <laughs> to set me straight on this thing. So let's 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 hear it. Uh, no, she. Uh, no, he he does not think that. He does not. He doesn't think about benefits at all, actually. 
Yeah. All, all he's concerned about is doing the, the rational thing, you know, following the rules. This is why it's called deontology. It's about your duty. This is not a consequence-focused theory of morality. Yeah, but that does, like, it's not a consequence-focused theory of morality. Like, the good or bad consequences of something aren't what makes it right or wrong for Kant. But that doesn't mean that it's bad to do things that benefit you. In fact, that would be a consequence-based view of morality if it was bad to do things. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you know, Kant talks in his groundwork for the metaphysics of morals, which is the basic text that we give intro students or intro to ethics students to read. He says explicitly that we should help our fellow man when we can. Yeah, so so he has this view. There are perfect duties, uh, which are things that you have to do all the time, no matter what. Uh, a like, duty to not kill people. Yeah, not that is a perfect duty. You must follow it at all times. Even when you're asleep, you should not be murdering. You should not. <laughs> like the uh, you should be, you know, getting up, making your coffee. Don't murder anybody while you do that. You know, read the newspaper. No murdering during that. You know, you go to work. Still no. And murdering. it doesn't matter. Who you see, you can't murder this guy, this woman. You cannot murder anyone along the way. Um, yes. Oh, Joe, what are you doing to me? Joe, Joe? says he doesn't care about the cut sequences. Ah. Uh, so <laughs> David Russell says she cut to the point. Uh, yeah, so you have a perfect duty not to murder because you're supposed to be just not murdering 24-7. Exactly. Uh, but you have imperfect duties, which are things that you uh, that it would be wrong. It would violate the categorical imperative if you never did them. Um, yeah, you have to do them sometimes. But you don't, you don't have to do them... All the time. Constantly. And it's, it's not... There's like a particular, you know... Like you're doing wrong if you if you don't do it at this particular moment, you know. Like, yeah, it's up to you to to pick and choose. You know, you can help this homeless person. You don't have to help every homeless person, but you got to help some homeless. Yes, if you if you just step over homeless people all the time and never once do anything to help, then maybe you're violating the categorical imperative because he says you have an imperfect duty of benevolence to to help your fellow man when you can. Uh, so, so because it's a duty, it's something that you have to do. Yeah. So Kant's view, uh, the categorical imperative, there are a few different formulations, but like uh, one, of the, one of them is the formula of humanity says uh, never treat humanity, whether in your own person or that of another. Key, key <laughs> phrase for the difference between what Ayn Rand says Kant's view is and what Kant's view actually is. Whether in your person or that of another, uh, you can never treat as uh, merely a means to an end. Always has to be a end uh, in itself. Uh, mandatory for a Kant discussion. Uh, Got to do 30 seconds on this. Uh, why is the merely important? Uh, because you can, in fact, treat someone as a means as long as you are also treating them as an end in themselves. Yeah. If you uh, if you ask your friend uh, for a ride to the airport, uh, you aren't violating the categorical imperative. You that's, are not. That, that's fine. Um, if you stick a gun to their head and demand that they give you a ride to the that's airport, bad. then you are. because You they, have a perfect duty to not stick a gun to your friend's head and demand a ride to the airport. Yeah, because that would be treated them merely as a means to an end. In other words, as if they didn't matter 
yeah. uh, that all their only significance was as a way of achieving your ends. Uh, that's what you're not supposed to do. Uh, and in the book that Jen mentioned earlier, um, which, by the way, I used to quote this in, in syllabi because uh, he has a line in there about how basically he says, look, I could make this simpler, but that it wouldn't be real philosophy. It would just be idle coffeehouse chatter. Only uh, you would put a con <laughs> quote in your syllabus. So I was like putting, you know, putting, look, there are a lot of hard readings in this class, but do you want philosophy or do you want idle coffeehouse chatter? Come on. <laughs> uh, but uh, but um, in... Uh, in that book, uh, he gives a few different examples of things that people could do to violate the categorical imperative. In fact, he gives four examples of that. And this idea that Ayn Rand often has that, well, her view is that you should, you know, is that you should devote yourself to, to your own flourishing and everybody else, the Kantians, the utilitarians, <laughs> everybody. It's all about me. <laughs> Oh, I like it. <laughs> uh, a, uh, but you know, she thinks everybody else—the Kantians, the utilitarians, all those devils—are uh, uh, you know all those villains. Uh, are, Wait, they're all devils. I think. Well, Kant is the devil, right? But is uh, Mill also a devil? Uh, well, I don't think I don't know if he's a devil, but I think she thinks he's very bad. He's a lesser demon. Maybe a lesser demon. Yeah. Um, that she thinks that all these other philosophies are saying that you should just deny yourself and only do things to help others and mm. not you know, tend to your own flourishing at all. Mm. And if you have this dichotomy, then her view starts to sound less sociopathic and ridiculous and more like, oh, okay, well, that sounds better than just like, you know, having to be 100% self-sacrificing all the time. Mm. But these, these four, um, I mean, utilitarians don't think that you should never do things for for your, for yourself. I mean, you, you should. I mean, if that's what's going to lead to more happiness exist in the world. We've been going over this in my intro to ethics class uh, today, actually. Yes. Uh, About how the the utiles you maximize might be your own. Right. Exactly. And um, and Kant in the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals. Uh, you know, he's, he gives four examples of things that people could do uh, that would violate the categorical imperative. And two of them are violations of duties to yourself. Uh, one of them is uh, a man who's considering uh, killing himself because he no longer finds satisfaction in life, which Kant thinks violates your duty to preserve your own life. Um, His reasoning is a little, uh, it's it's something. His, his he he really goes wrong there with some definitions and some reasoning, but that's not the point. That is neither here nor there right now. But the point he he makes is that no, you cannot do this. Yeah, and and like and that's again, it's a, a violation of duty to yourself. That would be an example of not treating humanity in your own person yeah. uh, as an end in itself, according to to Kant. I think even a lot of people who like lots of aspects of Kant's philosophy today think that maybe he. Uh, you know, his his view on, you know, euthanasia, assisted suicide, you know, there are tons of criticisms you could make there. But the point is, this is one of his four examples. So clearly he thinks that you should, in fact. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's not really what we're here to do is criticize his examples, although I did have to throw that out. Uh, but the idea is to show that, yes, this is a thing that he argues for. Yeah. And hey, that, Jay Andrew. <laughs> 
Uh, and then, um, uh, <laughs> and then um, uh, another one of his examples is a man who doesn't develop his own talents, uh, which Kant also thinks violates the categorical imperative because because uh, if you're just, you know, being driven around by desires, and you're not promoting your own excellence, you're not developing your talents, then you're not treating humanity and your own person as a end in itself. And I think that's really where the difference between Rand's caricature of Kant and, and, and what Kant thinks uh, gets very, very clear. Um, you know, I think that obviously... Any version of libertarianism, which is actually not a word Rand likes, but I mean, that's approximately her view, you know, is something I deeply disagree with. I think the uh, the less uh, zany uh, libertarian philosophers, <laughs> some of them have much more positive views of Kant. Uh, you know, the uh, word zany does not come up too much in discussions of Kant. <laughs> I've done this so many times in class and no one has ever used the word zany. Yeah. Um, uh, well, blue goop that's says, the problem. Blue goop asks, what if my uh, best talent is laziness, though? Uh, that would be, you know, earlier we watched a PragerU video where uh, people go back in time to ask uh, Ronald Reagan questions about the Cold War. Uh, if you could go back in time and, and do some Q&A with Kant, you know, that would be one yeah. to, to put on the list there. Um but I don't know. I mean, I, I guess um, I have to say, like I said, you know, you're the the, the fancy tenure track, you know, uh, professor. I'm the one with the job. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm the I'm the layabout shiftless podcaster, <laughs> Jack McCallumist, uh, adjunct uh, professor. Adjunct professor. Uh, but so I will I will you know defer to you if you have a different take on, on this. You know, you know better. But um, but. I, I kind of, I don't know. I mean, I, I've got to say, I, I, I came out of this liking, uh, liking Kant better than Ayn Rand. <laughs> Wait, liking Kant better than Ayn Rand does or liking Kant better than you like Ayn Rand? Ayn, Ayn Rand. Both. Both? I mean, I meant <laughs> okay. the second one, but yeah, both. <laughs> okay. Yes, I, my, my view is, is, is Kant greater than symbol Ayn Rand. <laughs> All right. Just trying to, trying to get rid of any ambiguity there. Fair enough. Well, <laughs> if you and your partner can relate to us, I I don't know what that says about you. And Jay, partner. yeah, Jay Hutch but. says I'm going to show this to my partner. Should be happy to see a couple we can relate to. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so this is fun. Uh, if, uh, if if you've enjoyed this last twenty minutes, don't worry. You're going to get some more of it. <laughs> Uh, I'll be back next episode. <laughs> next episode, and the episode after that. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, this is fun. Uh, we are going to go to the post game uh, for uh, for patrons, uh, where uh, the uh, uh, yeah, don't 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 engage with that one. Uh, so. Um, we're going to go to the post game for uh, for patrons, uh, where um, Brent Lingle is, uh, is is going to join us. Uh, and uh, again, Kelly's off tonight, but uh, but Jake 
uh, is our new producer is going to tell us his origin story. Uh, very, uh, very excited stuff. Uh, and, uh, and of course, and our, wait, I didn't get an origin story. Well, you could do your origin story on the next episode. <laughs> uh, so, uh, meanwhile, uh, we are going to, uh, call it there for the main show and uh, go to the post game left is best team Snoopy forever. <laughs>